As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Ah, guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's du? My gate is good, Herr Devine. How are you? I am well, and I'm delighted to hear that your gates are good. Lovely job. Lots for us to discuss today. The government. Yes. Who doesn't love it when a football podcast begins by discussing the government? And of course, in this instance, the government's uh, plan to introduce an independent football regulator in England. We'll be covering that. Less boring than it sounds, folks. So don't skip ahead or, you know... Whatever you do, whatever you want. You have autonomy within your own lives, theoretically. You may feel like you lack control, but the truth is the opposite. You're in charge. Obviously, there are some things you can't control. But uh, again, a therapist will help you with these sorts of uh, issues. A therapist may also be needed to help Manchester United because they are bad. Well, again, there's nuance there. And there's some things, again that are out of their control. This is running away from me. But we'll talk about Arsenal and Manchester United. We'll also talk about uh, Chelsea beating West Ham, uh, Brentford drawing uh, 0-0 with Tottenham, the top four race there, really hotting up. Liverpool and Everton. Everton now, in, I think, officially in the relegation zone. Of course, worth mentioning that Leeds play later this evening, so we won't be able to discuss them much. And a number of uh, transfer rumours and reports as well to discuss plus uh, Bayern Munich won the Bundesliga and PSG won Liga. So there. Plus Oldham. We'll be talking about Oldham. So much to get through. And if you like old ham, then you shouldn't visit The Athletic because The Athletic, if it was a butcher, would only produce the finest cuts of meat and the freshest. Isn't that right, Alex? Yeah. That is right. So uh, there'd be no old ham there. There'd only be new ham. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, and you can avail yourselves of a 30-day free trial. There is no real meat. Uh, Anyway, I will leave you now in the warm hands and the cool embrace of the butcher of the Premier League. The government. 
Seb, what, what the hell's going on with the government? I mean, lots of answers to that question, obviously, at the moment. But uh, specifically with their plan to introduce uh, an independent football regulator, as far as I'm aware, this uh, came off the back of a, of a, of a fan-led uh, process uh, involving uh, Tracy Crouch. And I think, was it was the catalyst for this starting the Super League? Yeah, it was by no means just about the Super League, but the Super League was kind of the tipping point. So obviously the Super League came at the end of a period of time which had most notably seen Berry go out of business. And it was a sort of enough is enough moment. And because there was government intervention involvement in the Super League process and the kind of the death rattle of the Super League, then the government had a kind of a voice in the conversation anyway. There's two parts to this. One is that obviously off the back of that, Tracy Crouch was appointed to lead an independent review of football. Now, the latest news is that the government have supported many, but not quite all of her recommendations one of which is the need for an independent regulator. Important thing here, like, so the cliff notes, I suppose, point one, most importantly, is there's no timeline on this stuff. So I think as part of the government communication, it was said that the earliest any new legislation will come into being is 2024. So still some way away from that. Although not as far away from that as would make me happy. You know, when I think we're in 2022, 2023, I start to feel very old and confused. 2024 really is only around the corner. Uh, Although that is just a minimum. So that's not a set in stone date. The other thing which is quite disappointing was that one of the recommendations Crouch made in her report was that incoming transfers from abroad into the Premier League should be subject to a levy. And that the government has sort of not got involved with and said that football can kind of take care of that by itself, which if you're being cynical, you say, I know exactly how that's going to go. But I suppose highlights are that independent regulation would grant the power for someone outside the game to sanction a club were it not to be running properly. Now, quote unquote, around properly, but the focus is going to be on sustainability. So this this kind of not dissimilar to UEFA's new sustainability rules, like a sort of like a financial fair play style thing. If clubs run amok of these sorts of areas, then they could also be sanctioned by now an independent body. Yeah, that's it. And the way it's been presented is unlike the kind of the, the new sustainability rules where there's a sort of a time period within which a, a club can be compliant, much like the old FFP rules. The way the independent regulation is being presented is as a kind of as a constant check. So the independent regulator would have the opportunity to intervene, whereas to would would have the power first of all to investigate and to kind of run its eye over business practices. And this includes things like an amended director's test. So obviously at the moment the much maligned director's test, which allows in everybody apparently, would be replaced. In what form, we're not quite sure, but uh, we're led to believe that there would be some kind of personal integrity aspect to it too. Not quite sure exactly what the specifics of that are, whether it includes things like human rights or not, but you'd, you'd have thought so. But then from that point on, you would consider the independent regulator as more of a monitor, not someone that checks in every two or three years or not a mechanism which is triggered by a single bad cataclysmic event, but rather a, um, a watchdog. Can I ask a question at this point? Because you're doing a great job of uh, telling us what this all means. I don't really understand. Can you say to me, what kind of impact would might we expect, hypothetically, this sort of body to have over the next five years? I mean, what's an example of something that has happened in the past that might not, or maybe the aim would be to stop that? happening berry is the is a clear one right but and is that just because this body can act proactively instead of retrospectively this is it so i I suppose two key focuses there the body would aim to prevent a certain type of person 
buying a football club in the first place. So the actual, the, the kind of the test that precedes ownership, which would be a lot more stringent, that includes, I'd, I'd imagine, proper checks on financing, proper checks on wealth, sources of wealth, questions about sources of wealth. These are very, very important things and they seem to be pertinent almost uh, on a regular basis at the moment. But then the other thing is, I think the idea is that you don't have to wait for someone to run out of money or to sell a ground. One of the key bits of this is the sort of the golden share initiative, which I think when it was first presented, sounded like much more of a macro dynamic, whereas in reality, it would be there to, you know, be a sort of golden share held by a group of supporters or a sort of a shadow board of supporters. And they would be allowed to veto certain changes that were initiated within the club, including things like badge change or changing of kit color now that's a very important one obviously you remember the sort of the vincent tan episode at cardiff city where he changed the shirt color from blue to red and all hell broke loose now in theory the golden share would prevent that from happening so you couldn't have a club redesigned on the whim of a new owner and it's there as a i suppose the best way of presenting it cultural safeguard let's call it that yeah that is a new thing because it sounds like the, most of the other things are sort of existing rules, a bit a bit stricter, and with the ability to act in a more timely sense rather than retrospectively. But the golden share there, an example of something that is is new to this. It's to stop things happening before they do. It's so that you don't find yourself in a situation where an owner makes a change and then you have to wind it back. That's the kind of thing that we've seen before. I think one of the problems here, and cannot stress this enough, is that what the government have released and what they've committed to is incredibly vague. And so nobody should be announcing a new era of football. Nobody should be kind of celebrating this new epoch of integrity because, first of all, we don't know what it is. Second of all, we don't know when it would be starting. It's intentionally vague. Well, if I were a politician, Seb, would I think that perhaps this is quite a good news story for me to uh, discuss because there aren't going to be many football fans in the country that disagree with it. But also it's vague enough so that people with money, who I also enjoy, wouldn't necessarily be freaking out instantly because of my announcement. Yeah, and also the crux of that is that levy issue because you make sure that you're not cutting off a revenue source. The government has stopped short of involving itself in redistribution, which is the hot topic. And I'd imagine a bit of a third rail with the uh, the richest Premier League owners or richest football club owners. But also, I think what we're going to see next, before we see any proper legislation, is over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear an awful lot from Premier League executives who find themselves on Sky Sports News or TalkSport or whatever and start telling everybody why this is wholly unnecessary. The Premier League is a, a, a kind of a bastion of good governance. So that's a fabulous example, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to go into lobbying season well before we actually start legislating any change. Sure. Okay. Fascinating. Would you like to add anything here, Alex? Do you have any thoughts? I was reading something on The Athletic this morning about the family members. I think it's an uncle and a father of Dejon Chansiri, who owns Sheffield Wednesday. And they've been accused or convicted of insider trading in Thailand right. with their company. And just as a throwaway, it says that you know, Dejan Chansiri himself, the owner of Sheffield Wednesday, no one knows where his money comes from. Mm. And that's that's just a line in a news story. Like, how can you not know where the money that is propping up an entire football club comes from? You mean if you're the body that, that oversees that football club before that person buys it? I mean, just generally. Sure. But yeah, it's it's baffling. And that's, that's why, you know, with Seb mm. highlighting the potentially more stringent fit and proper persons test, that has to be a good thing. But yeah, I don't really have anything else to add. Fine. Just mystified by that. Yeah. 
Okay. I, I, I will say that it's amazing how often that comes up. The not sure where the money comes from. Yeah. Not sure if the person has any money. Also, if you look back over the history of particularly football league clubs over the last 10 or 20 years, it's amazing how many times the same people with the same questions about their financing mm. appear in prospective buyer lists. They do crop up, don't they? They really do. There's a small group of, not multiple offenders, but uh, frequent visitors to the discussion. Yeah, it's not dissimilar to the kind of manager's merry-go-round. You know, we don't really have that as much anymore. I think the manager merry-go-round was a big, big thing in 2013, 14, where there was always the sort of same list of five managers who would mm. be available for any kind of mid-table <laughs> to upper championship level club at any given point. But uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean by that, Seb. Okay, fine. Well, that's the government done, um, hopefully, and we will move on to discuss other things now, including Arsenal 3, 1 Manchester United. Now, first things first, a great week for Arsenal, Alex, because Arsenal, of course, after losing three games in a row that you would be fair to think they probably could have won those games. Mm. They beat Chelsea and Manchester United in the same week. And I mean, it's probably been a very long time since you could say that. Yeah, and obviously critical for them in, in the race for fourth because they are more direct rivals. I mean, Chelsea have probably got a bit of distance, but United were arguably still in that conversation. And I think Arsenal will be feeling very pleased. There does seem to be this fluctuating narrative around Arsenal of, you know, should they have continued faith in this system? There are still question marks around whether Arteta is tactically sufficiently savvy for that club. But this is the sort of thing that seems to answer that, I would suggest. Also with good individual performances. I mean, at match of the day highlighted El Elneny coming back in, having not really played a great deal and, and putting in a very, very good performance. For both Arguably, games, actually. He played against Chelsea as well, didn't he? Yeah, and I think, you know, yes, if, you, if you're if you that kind of midfielder, you, you should be able to find yourself a good performance against Manchester United's midfield insofar as there is a Manchester United midfield. But also, you know, the, the, the usual stuff from Saka, from Smith Rowe, Erdegaard. There's a really good little team building there. And this is the sort of result or two results that will give them confidence because that seems still to be one of the issues with Arsenal is there is this kind of fluctuation of belief. And I think that can happen yeah. when there's a younger squad and some of the key leaders like Granite Xhaka have been absent for periods this season. That That's the way that they're going to get that self-belief and continue to grow is by winning games. That's an incredibly obvious thing to say, but it is also still true. Sure. I also think they're a little thin in the squad and mm. that will become obvious a bit later as well Seb when we discuss um, some of their defensive issues in, in this game but uh, Alex you presume it's quite a nice position to be in isn't it a team that is gelling together that you can see a future in that's uh, stacked with young players they still probably need a strong summer to capitalise on the gains they've made this season but you could see that happening yeah completely and I think that's why European football is so important for them because obviously you're going to get additional revenue that comes from European football and you can speculate as to what that is and therefore make player signings on the basis of what your pot of money will be. They're more likely uh, to want to come as well. But they are more likely to want to come and I think that's the crucial thing. And, and you would look at, for example, Manchester United and yes, there is a, a lure there because it's still a big club and they'll be under new management. But if United are out of Europe altogether, which is a very distinct possibility, are they going to be able to attract the kind of talent that that will allow them to compete on various fronts for trophies. And 
Arsenal seem to be in a stronger position going forwards with regards mm. to that. Yeah. We'll talk about Man United a little bit later, but one perspective might be that it could be good for them to be in a position where they can't just buy any old expensive player. <laughs> well, yeah, but that, I agree with that, mm. but the, that is, <laughs> you know, that's assuming that they're going to make intelligent decisions otherwise. Sure. And, and the, the flip side to that is that they still chase the expensive players, but the ones who are going to need additional convincing to come to a club that's not in European football and therefore spend even more in terms of wages mm. securing whoever the next, you know, disruptive older player who's going to join the dressing room is. Yeah. Not great. Seb, in the Manchester United game and in the Chelsea game, Arsenal uh, in attack at least showed like a lot of creativity. There's a real bond between some of those forward players now. It's quite nice to watch, isn't it? It's brilliant to watch. I The Odegaard Saka and Smith Rowe triangle is really great. It's interesting. Alex Alex talked earlier about how um, there's a sort of fluctuating confidence situation at Arsenal, and I felt like that was kind of this problem in microcosm during this game because you saw very obviously some of the problems in the Arsenal team. I thought Cedric had a really tough time against Jay and Sancho. Um, Sancho's gifted, fair enough. They need Tommy Asu back, but I, I really like the fact that it's some of these younger players. Who and you know guys like Granite Jacker produced a, a, a telling moment on Saturday. Um, some of these younger players are the ones who provide the expression when they absolutely need to. Martinelli can be occasionally good for that, although he came off the bench in this game. But there's this kind of um, we're kind of um, delving into cliche here a little bit, but there's a kind of a youthful exuberance to it all. Like there's a lack of fear in players like Saka. Um, Saka's uh, honestly he's so much fun to watch. He plays with kind of a, he's such an optimistic kind of player with the way that he he carries the ball. Erdegaard, I mean, if you look at the, um, I know it all got swallowed by the kind of the VAR mess that followed, but if you look at the incident that led to the Arsenal penalty, the ball from Odegaard, the disguise on it, it's kind of, it's almost like he's touching the ball three times with the same kick. It's really strange to watch. I don't think I've, I've seen an assist like that for a really long time. But it's a good example of the fact that whilst we talk about things like, oh, well, Arsenal got this terribly difficult running and young group of players inexperienced, I think this is the Manchester United game in particular showed that you can have a a lack of experience in the situation and a little lack of inhibition and the kind of the the fear that goes with oh well we've got to play Chelsea and Man United in the same week and we all know how that goes and you know that kind of stuff. If you've got a little nucleus of players that don't really care about that stuff or have an attitude which um, transcends those kind of fears, then this can be the result. And actually, I think there are a couple of times in the Chelsea game too where Arsenal played themselves out of trouble in the in the in the way that they kind of they. They seize the ascendancy by virtue of playing football rather than just resisting Chelsea. Like, I know Chelsea kicked the ball into their own net a couple of times, that's fair to say, but the quality of the interplay at the top of the pitch, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Villarreal's performance in that game against Bayern Munich, and John Muller did a, an excellent piece on how they were willing to play under pressure, how they're actually willing to play football, pass the ball up the field, move the ball into key areas, keep asking questions. Arsenal did the same thing in both of these games because there are periods against United where I thought United were the better, better side, a few kind of decisions going their way, you know, if Bruno Fernandes puts the penalty and those kind of things, it could have gone um, wrong and you could feel the pressure and you could feel the anxiety from the fans, but not necessarily always from the players. And it was, um, yeah, it was really encouraging. Also on that Arteta thing, right? I know the debate will go on forever and Arsenal is a very binary club in terms of the reactions it provokes because that's the nature of the fan base. But I think you have to see what Arteta is capable of with a proper centre forward. It's a point we've made before, but it, it is fair because at the moment he's kind of doing without. Elian Kata, good player. Yeah, Alexander Lacazette, good player, although not a goal scorer. If you 
put a goal scorer in between all the Smith Rowe's and the Sackers and the Odegaard's, that's really interesting. And I kind of want to see what happens there first before we make any conclusions. That's perhaps something that we will come on to discuss a little bit later because there were some rumours around that uh, very position. But before we do that, Ralph Rangnick with Manchester United uh, conceding it after the game that top four has gone for the team. Having said that, the result here or the scoreline was maybe a little bit well, perhaps didn't quite reflect the the quality of Manchester United at times within the game, Seb? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I thought uh, it kind of saw two versions of United. Defensively, absolutely hopeless, uh, as has become the norm over the last few weeks. But there were a couple of moments of offensive play which made you think, yeah, this is kind of what it's supposed to look like. This is what people imagined. Jaden Sancho playing from out in, Cristiano Ronaldo moving into good positions in the, you know, the penalty box kind of promising I don't feel they sustained it there's no authority to this Man United team in the way that like old Man United teams and I know this is an old man thing to say but you felt like once they had a little bit of momentum in games and once they sensed a weakness they were able to kind of channel everything they had all their resources towards that weakness so for instance it became clear in the first half that actually Cedric was going to really struggle with Sancho and a little bit lucky not to give away a penalty but you thought, okay, but then you've left that weakness unexplored for almost the entire rest of the game. You've got an issue down the left-hand side and yet you don't really have the players or the system to exploit it, which was felt very, very strange to me. United weren't hopeless. I know it's become very fashionable to talk about them as a sort of a slapstick team and in many ways they are, but this wasn't an example of that. They're just the defending aside. They're, they're a team that has slapstick moments, I think. Yeah. And in some cases also slapstick performances, Alex, as perhaps is maybe a little harsh to say, but... Um, Bruno Fernandes did not have a good game. No, I mean, it is worth, I just, you know, single game XG is a nonsense, but also this game was a lot more even. <laughs> I love how you do that. Than, you always say, this doesn't mean anything, but, but I'm going to say it, anyway. well, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but it, it does, it does in some way go to show what Seb has highlighted with more of an eye test. Bruno Fernandes, yes. And I don't know, it's difficult for, I, I don't want to say sympathetic because I, I'm not, a Man United fan and I don't hate them either so why would I have an emotional feeling towards it but sure Fernandez is a is a player who doesn't elicit a great deal of sympathy when he has a bad game there is a petulance that comes out he should probably have been sent off not that yeah. you know there's any point in going over refereeing decisions that didn't go one way or the other and that's particularly uh, the, <laughs> the case for this game but it does feel like there are a number of players in that United team who just don't gel well together. And if things are off, there is, you know, a, a lot of teams will have like a fullback position. If plan A is not working, then there's a kind of retrenching back. There's a certain style of building up. There's a way of keeping possession. Good teams will go into that almost automatically. Really good teams like a Manchester City or a Liverpool will do that even positionally when a player's out of position, then the other players will know exactly where to go to mitigate for that and so on. United don't have that. They, no. do, they don't have an ability to fall back into a simple, let's control the tempo for five or 10 minutes. Let's move the ball around. Let's try and, you know, it's... Let's change the way the opponents are feeling about the game. Exactly this, and and try and get some hold on the tempo because the tempo doesn't need to be either super quick or super slow. It needs to be what you want it to be for a portion of the game that allows you to feel that you're coming into it more. 
And Fernandez seems to be the kind of person who wants to play the game entirely at his pace and chase the ball when he wants to chase the ball and stride around with his hands on his hips looking knocked when he doesn't. And that that sort of lack of... I'm not saying that he's not a good footballer. That would obviously be a stupid thing to say. And I'm not saying he's not necessarily a good team player either, but he's a better team player when things are going their way. And when they're not, he either tries to make everything happen himself or goes... Sort of, it's not working. I'm just going to be annoyed. Mm. And that, when you're in that kind of position, is incredibly unhelpful, particularly when the rest of the team do have these sorts of mistakes in them. They're looking towards a talismanic figure to provide that stuff. Yeah. And it's not happening from him. It's funny, isn't it, when you when you say it like that? He reminds me in some ways of when Wayne Rooney was at Manchester United because players looked to him in a similar way. When he was a bit younger, at the, the beginning of his career, he had an aggression to him, which mm. he sort of lost a little bit over time. But he was also a player that would just try to make everything happen on his own if it wasn't working. And the thing that Rooney and Fernandez share in common is that they can do that. There are examples of numerous games where Rooney and Fernandez have just won the game essentially on their own or have driven their team to succeed. The things are the traits that drive them to do that are also the traits that drive oh, yeah. them to throw toys out of the pram. Yeah. And so I guess a little bit of balance needs to be there when discussing it because yes, it's very frustrating to watch a Manchester United team or to watch a player like Fernandez who complains about everything, moans all the time, you know, seems to be led by emotion more than perhaps you would like. But also it can be, you know, it can be those sorts of things which can but bring I think, positives too. I think often with, say for example, Rooney and United, there was another presence on the pitch that might be a more of a kind of shouty experience leader type. It might mm. be someone like, I don't know, Michael Carrick who can get the ball and control the tempo. Yeah. There was somebody else there who was able to go, okay, well, he's going to go off and run around like a headless chicken and whatever. But there was still enough of a sense within the rest of the team of how to control that and how to adjust mm. to that kind of behavior. And I feel like United has, you know, in players like Varane, for example, hugely experienced and competent footballers, you know, the odd mistake aside, but th these are people who've won lots of stuff or someone like Maguire, who's, you know, played regularly for England and and has captain that side. But it still feels like there isn't somebody on the pitch who is able to do that, who is able to instill that kind of discipline for periods of the game. And because Ranić himself has clearly not been able to communicate his ideas, I think as as well as he would like to or not had those ideas taken up, then it doesn't feel like there's a really an automatic game plan for the team to follow no. automatically. They're in a holding pattern now. Yeah, I think they are in a holding pattern. And I think the problem when you're in a holding pattern from the manager's tactical perspective is that you need players on the pitch who are able to make those adjustments and understand those things. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be one currently. So yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> it's very tricky. There are still some really good players there. And when sure. Ten Hag comes in, he's got tools to work with. Um, well, speaking of, Seb Ten Hag, an enormous challenge on his hands and the hands of his staff. We haven't really spoken about this that much on the on the podcast so far. We've made, made a few videos about it. But it does feel like with every passing week, the job gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Also, I worry a little bit because obviously I've, like you, I've read most of the Athletics Excellent reporting, New Ham reporting around Eric Ten Hag. And a lot of it is based <laughs> on the fact that the opening couple of weeks or the opening few months or maybe even the first season, it's a very detail-orientated person. And you're matching that with a group of players who 
I don't know if this is fair. This is just an impression I get. Group players who think they're a little bit better than they really are, um, individually, collectively, also is a little bit of a, a kind of a gold lock situation because every brief that seems to kind of add out of Man United's dressing room is training's too hard, training's too easy, it's too old-fashioned, it's too new, nothing's ever quite right. Now, I worry about putting someone like Ten Hag with that kind of detail-orientated manner in with the group of players, but also equipping him only with a well, a CV of Eredivisie success. It's hard. It's especially difficult if it if it doesn't go well quickly, because immediately you're going to get players who, again, think they're above the coach, think they're above the coach's ideas. What have you ever done in England or Italy or, or Spain? You know, it's that kind of mindset which I, I think is fairly toxic. But yeah. well, I I agree with you. And can I can I just list a number of the yeah. things that I see as a as a as an observer of problems that need to be solved, you know, not immediately, but soon. 100%. What do you do with Ronaldo? Let's toss the, the list. First right, one, that one. Right? Yeah. I mean, what do you do with Bruno Fernandes? Obviously, has a, has a new contract. The club have, have committed to him to their future. He's uh, paid a lot of money now. And I think one of the things we've seen that coaches have struggled with at Manchester United over the last sort of year and a half is how you fit Fernandes into a system that isn't built around him. There's a problem to be solved there. Also, what do you do with Maguire as the captain? Do you make a decision there or do you not? Because that's going to be a huge turning point for him as a coach. Does he come in and decide not to upset the Apple, well, to seem to upset the Apple cart, whether doing that internally would upset it or not is unclear. But do you pick a, a, a different captain? You won't have all the money in the world. So which are the positions that you would target initially? Because it seems like Manchester United probably need uh, fullbacks, need, certainly need a defensive midfielder, uh, certainly need, um, well, I mean, as Ronaldo reaches 38 years old, will need a, another attacking option as well. So there's a lot to do and not that many windows to do it in before, you know, your time runs short. And what are, presumably your, your goal for the first season has to be finishing in the top four. But how do you do that when you have that list of four virtually impossible to solve problems off the bat? I think this is it because there's a certain type of Man United fan who thinks that the answer to all Man United's problems are buying a hundred million pound player in every position. And fine, I'm, I'm sure that would go some way to making things a little bit better. It does help. It can yeah. help having limitless money. And <laughs> yes, exactly. But I also think at the same time that this summer, if ever this was true, it's this 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 year, it's more important who leaves than who arrives. Alex mentioned it before. There are good players there. I know the midfield is a problem. I know it could do with refining. But at the same time, if you were just to weed out some of the uh, less desirable elements within that dressing room and ensure that the coaching message on the training ground isn't being diluted. There aren't little factions of discontented players all over Carrington. I think that's a really good start. And, you know, before you, it always makes me nervous when you, when you have a new coaching staff, an entirely new coaching staff coming to a club and you also have a lot of flux within your squad, you know, a lot of kind of uh, transients happening. I think that's a problem because there's a lot of moving parts to, to kind of reassemble within the same summer. Better to allow people to bed into, allow a new coaching structure to bed in and then allow them to kind of prune the garden a little bit. I think that might be a better way forward. There are a number of players leaving. I mean, Paul Pogba will go. It'd be surprised if yeah. Jesse Lingard doesn't go. Yeah. Edison Cavani will go. Matic is going. Matter is going. It's quite a lot off the, the wage bill, Alex. Yeah. Interestingly, I, I personally would keep Cavani and Lingard because I think the way I would handle this is I would prune the squad, exactly as Seb says. I would look to have intelligent pressing footballers, I would retain them. That's why I'd keep Lingard and that's why I'd keep Cavani. And then I would really try to 
integrate some of the promising under 23 players, look at Ten Hag's record with bringing youth players through and getting them to integrate into a system. I think you'd have more of a sense of cohesion if you did that, especially if you got rid of some of the other players. I think the biggest single thing that United really need to do is accept that fourth upwards is maybe too much for them next year and go, okay, what we target actually is European football of some description, even if that means finishing sixth or winning the FA Cup. We try to recreate some of the sense of what it is to be a Manchester United player by using the promising players that are coming through the youth system. I think there's an appetite for that among the fan base as well. I think mm. you get rid of some of the bigger earners, even if you take a loss on them. And you have players that are intelligent and are able to knuckle down and learn a system like Cavani, like Lingard. They become the kind of dressing room leaders through example, through diligence and through understanding a new system of football. It's never going to happen, but that's what I would do. No, I'm listening to you say, um, I'll come to you, Seb, as well, but like, I'm just listening to you talk and thinking the first thing there, Manchester United not targeting internally top four is would just never, ever happen sure. next season. Next yeah. season, at the very least. But, but, um, but, but you, no, I take the point. You I need, understand why that, could be, why that could make sense. They're, they're a club that has been in transition since Sir Alex Ferguson left. Sure. <laughs> and that transition has transitioned into various sure. different forms you yeah. know they are just an amorphous blob leaking money onto shit footballers at the moment mm. and they need to rediscover what it is they actually are seb yeah well it's a really simple point but it it, it ties with, with what alex said in that may United need to be become one of those clubs again where players who join them become better not worse. Now, there are some exceptions because there are players who have joined over the last decade who have improved and whose value has grown as a result of being a Manchester United player. But if you look, for instance, uh, if you compare them to Liverpool, which is unflattering, I, I understand. But if you look at some of the players that have arrived there, like take a, an Andy Robertson or a Luis Diaz or Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, these players get better. You go to Liverpool, you get better. There are very few players who go to Liverpool and become worse or whose reputation is damaged by a, that transfer. And Man United. Diogo Jota as well. Jota, I mean, you know, exactly. I think Another one. If you'd, if you'd ask yeah. like your average Premier League fan about him when he was at Wolves versus when he's at Liverpool, I know obviously the club bias is going to be is going to be he, there. But he, that's... like Simakas, right, would probably be a starting left back at any other Premier League side sure. bar Man City, and barely gets talked about. He's really good. Like they know what they're doing with that stuff. Compare that to Man United and look at the kind of reputations. Take right Aaron Wan-Bissaka is an easy target, but it's a pertinent example. At Crystal Palace, one of the biggest prospects in English football, like that's a you know he could be a, a you know first choice England fullback slash centre back, outside centre back for the next ten years, that kind of stuff. A couple of years later, you think fifty million pounds really for him, and this isn't always on the player. This is a, a an instance of misused talent or using players in the wrong way, using players in a system that doesn't suit them, or using players in a way that or in combination with someone else that increases the chances of failure. Like, Man United are riddled with those kind of problems. And it's only really someone like Edison Cavani, I think, who came in. And I, I think a lot of people had a lot of negative things to say about that signing, me included, because it just, it seemed very typical of United. Throw some money at this aging guy, get some goals, big name, big name, sell a few, you know, tractor partnerships, whatever. But actually, he's one of the few instances of a player that comes to Man United and his attitude is so good. And he's used in exactly the right way. And you think you almost develop a new audience for his abilities, um, I think. And, and that's, that's certainly true of him. 
elsewhere, like Sancho's another one. Sancho remains a brilliant player who's just who has been, I don't know what's the right term, maybe neglected a little bit by his use in this team. Competence has suffered. But that is the basic thing. Get back to improving players or using players right. And that's about coaching. And I suppose that supports the idea of a little a kind of a club-wide detox over the summer, just so that you have a kind of a fertile environment again. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. That's uh, Arsenal and Manchester United. Best of luck to both of those teams. Let's have a break now, because it's been a long time since we had a break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Oh, what a lovely break that was. Yes. Chelsea won nil West Ham. Dull game, Alex. Dull game. It was a bit. And I that dull game, you know, narrative says, oh, Chelsea aren't very good sometimes. And I think the first thing to say is, goodness me, but David Moyes is a good football coach. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that West Ham defended and blocked this creating a kind of 5-3-2-ish shape. Sometimes it was a 5-2-3 shape, doubling up on wide players. Every West Ham player, and this was a team that had changes in it because, you know, Rice had, was rested from the start, although he did come on. It was a team with significant changes. Every single one of those West Ham players looked like they knew exactly where they should be at any given moment. And to be fair, they were unlucky on a couple of instances not to score. Craig Dawson was superb until he got sent off and I I mean it was kind of like you could see there was a bit of a foul there but I do I do think it was slightly soft Mm. but yes there wasn't a great deal here I think the thing that stood out to me because obviously one of the ongoing narratives around Chelsea this season has been why Lukaku has failed to ignite and I noticed so many instances during this match of not just Lukaku, actually, once he'd come on, but also earlier on. Players being in positions to make runs in behind and Chelsea not looking for them. And I don't know if it's something that was particularly apparent in this game because of the way West Ham were defending, but Chelsea don't like to look for runners. So it's no real surprise that Lukaku, who there were you know two or three really clear instances within five minutes of him coming on where his body position was perfect to make a particular run onto a particular pass that was largely open and Chelsea just looked to move it wide again. And it was frustrating to watch that because you can you can see why certain types of strikers don't thrive in that environment. Uh, mm-hmm. Jorginho's slowing the ball down sometimes. I think the only other thing that was interesting to me was Ruben Loftus-Cheek being used as a right wing back, which... Yeah, there again, there is a strange player, like capable of doing some really cool stuff, very creative. But this this sense that Chelsea have, you know, their whole defense is basically departing, and they have maybe ten good midfielders at the mm. club next season. Like, 
how are they structuring themselves? What kind of style of football are they going to play? It seems like a like a squad that will look very, very unbalanced very, very quickly once certain people leave. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I think one of the perspectives you could take about Chelsea and Tuchel is that the thing that keeps them from being uh, considered amongst those top two clubs of Liverpool and Manchester City, apart from consistent results, mm. uh, is their changeability. They change. They seem to change all the time. I'm not sure, with the exception of uh, your formation, I'm not sure that you could really hang your hat on one consistent style of play from, from Tuchel over the whole period he's been here. Not to say that it's, you know, teams don't adapt, but I think it's easier to define what Manchester City and Liverpool are. It's yeah. not as easy to define what Chelsea are. I mean, I think, I think Chelsea massively suffered from the injuries in quick succession to Chilwell and Rhys James, sure. because when they did have those two wingbacks playing, they had Aspilicueta playing as a, as a wide centre-back, Rudiger was making those runs forwards from that left-hand side. Like you could see what Chelsea were going to do pretty yeah. much all the time in the first third of the season, which is why I thought they were probably still likely to, well, certainly be a lot closer. I think I said they'd win the Premier League, which was kind of dumb. Obviously, so you think maybe it's more injury, injury led? I think injuries have had a big impact because once you lose players that are so crucial to that system, right. then all of a sudden, I mean, Marcus Alonso is decent on the left-hand side, but he's not as good at attacking and finding himself in those advanced inside positions as Chilwell is. Yeah. That robs Chelsea uh, of a lot of what they can do. But yeah, that that means that there are odd things. It's still odd to me that Callum Hudson-Odoi is not playing more regularly. I mean, I, I don't really know what's happening there. He's, he's had some injury difficulties. Yeah. Um, but obviously that predates the kind of some of the issues around his selection. Mm. Well, an important win for Chelsea because um, things were starting to look a little shaky for them. Uh, they are probably fairly confidently third, let's say. But if they'd lost this game, things might have been a little bit different. Um, in that race for top four, Seb, Brentford nil, nil Tottenham. Um, oh, can I just oh, highlight yeah, one thing quickly first? Please do. Gear Jordet, who we've mentioned on the podcast before, who did a interesting thread on the way that I think it was Chelsea protect their penalty takers by having somebody else pick up the ball. He did another good little thread over the weekend about how Jorginho's penalty style has been unlocked and the way that Fabianski deliberately shifted his weight to make it look like he was going to dive one way, but then kind of collapsed his legs mm. the other way so that he basically prompted Jorginho to play the ball to where he then moved and and saved it. It's worth finding. Right. It's yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I put it in the plan, so I wanted that to be recognised. No, because I, was, I do work. I'm looking for this at it podcast now, and I do prepare things. Okay. I'm also just going to quickly <laughs> listen to this. I believe it's Geir. Oh, is how okay. you pronounce that name? Right. Geir. I'm My listening to the Forvo pronunciation. Yeah. Geir. Apologies if that's not correct, but uh, if it is. You're welcome. Um, and I enjoyed that I was doing that as you were, you were uh, bragging about how much preparation you do sure. for the podcast, Alex. Yeah. Good job. Well done. It wasn't bragging. Uh, it's well, just a bragging. out that it does happen. Uh, Tottenham, certainly not doing any bragging, Seb, because they drew away to Brentford and uh, really harming their chances of getting in the top four. It was just so boring, Joe. It was almost, it was so boring. Was it? It kind of transcended any fears around or negativity or disappointment about the top four all of their football was slow it was all played in front of um a 
bank of eight or nine Brentford defenders. Brentford were the, 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 clearly the better team, hit the post, Ivan Tony, but also they created the better chances and they play with much more purpose. And I, if, if ever this was true of Tottenham, I think Saturday showed it, you got to get your recruitment right. I think you really notice the issues in that first 11 when you're playing against a team that are properly organised and that are honest and are willing to not necessarily outwork you, but work at the same level and play with the same intensity. And I think if you if you think about kind of the, the classic Antonio Conte sequence and how ball movement and the speed of ball movement is really, really important and that players need to get the ball in the right positions at the right time and then make the right decision at a super quick pace, uh, you can see they're, they're a mile away in many ways. I think it's sort of watching Emerson Royale play right back or right wing back consistently I, I feel like I, I feel like time slows down every time he touches the ball it's not that he's a bad player it's just that he's the wrong player and he's the most conclusive case of wrong player in the wrong position for the wrong manager there is in the Premier League at the moment and I, I think as a result you end up moving the ball in a way which allows all the defensive gaps to be plugged so I'm just laughing Alex is making a face as, as if can I think about that and challenge the you big the big call there? But you Go have on. to. Here's the rule about that, though. You have to yeah. you have to factor in a thirty million pound transfer fee as well, because I think what's happened here, Seb. I wouldn't worry about it. I agree with you about the big big transfer fee, but I think what's happened is Alex. All that's really happened is he's seen an opportunity to say you're wrong, but he doesn't actually have <laughs> the guile to back it up. Just no, yet. he hasn't got the details. Just, it's just such an enormous call. Sure, that I. Tell me the call again, sir. All the players in the wrong situation. Let's just let's simplify, simplify, say wrong situation in the Premier League. Emerson Royale at Tottenham playing for Antonio Conte. If you think about what a wing back is supposed to do in, in his system and what they're supposed to provide, his last wing back, Ashraf Hakimi. <laughs> so he goes from that <laughs> to, to a situation where losing Mac Doherty for, for three months ends his season in a way. I think in the right system. If you played, if Emerson Royale played, I don't know, let's say for Atletico Madrid, I think he'd be a, a very acceptable 7 out of 10, 7.5 out of 10 player. At Spurs, it's a disaster. And if you look at it dispassionately, it's actually really interesting because it's, it's, a, it's a study into how if you have one little component wrong in a team who are not, you know, um, top of the financial food chain, um, who, who aren't able just to overpower teams with the kind of the strength of their individuals, one little component is wrong. The ripple effect throughout the rest of the side is so dramatic. It's a very, very good way of kind of um, under this understanding the importance of getting everything right from a recruiting standpoint, I think. That's right, T-Pose. And the way to visualise this is uh, imagine yourself standing above a pond and dropping a large stone in. Yes? Imagine it now. Oh, but instead of dropping it in... No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Leave them, leave them a little bit of space. Leave them a little bit of space to imagine. Yes, there it is. Mm. Liverpool 2 nil Everton. Uh, moving on to the Sunday now. Uh, this game, I didn't watch it, but I enjoyed it largely because I note that Liverpool had 83% possession. Alex, that's a lot of possession. Is yes. that the most ever? Uh, it's not the most ever, no. Uh, the most ever since Opta started collecting data in 2003-04 as Manchester City against Swansea when they had 83% possession right Le Everton completed fewer than 100 passes mm. in the whole game in the whole game good lord yeah I think this was a really odd game because it started off with Everton 
basically in really quite a good low and mid block. It looked like a four-five-one. Basically, Richarlison was running the channels up front, but Gordon was dropping back quite deep on the left-hand side to defend somebody else who I've forgotten. Gray, I think, was doing it on the right-hand side, and then you had quite a solid midfield three with Alex Iwobi, the one who was trying to push up and actively press a bit more. And it worked quite well. Everton also took every single opportunity they could to waste time, delay restarts, Mm. roll around as and when Anthony Gordon got booked for one dive, but could arguably be booked for like three or four others. Right. And it was a very kind of un-Frank Lampard performance in that way as a manager, I think. You know, particularly from his period at Chelsea, you associate him with being able to create relatively interesting uh, and slightly chaotic attacking patterns, but unable to organize a defense and probably not much of a shithouser. But actually, there was a lot of that in this game. Liverpool tried and tried and tried and tried. And eventually, because they were so much better, they were able to get some breaks. But it is worth noting, I think if Everton had had a bit of luck on a couple of occasions... Like, this could have been one of the all-time great smash and grabs. You know, Gordon was really electric down that left-hand side. Yeah. And I thought Iwobi worked incredibly hard. Alan had that sort of destructive, RC performance. Richarlison, if he takes the rolling around out of his game, could be a really good player. I mean, he is a good player, but he's just a bit irritating. But I do think... I think it's it's an interesting question now for Everton going forwards. They have a limited number of games left. Is Lampard going to go back to trying to play more of a possession style of football, which is his natural inclination, when actually this sit deep and use wide, quick players and Richarlison's ability to hold the ball up and run the channels? Yeah, obviously they do it against Liverpool away from home because Liverpool are so much better. Chelsea this coming weekend as well, presumably. Like, if, if I'm Lampard, then I am ditching those previous principles and sticking with this approach because I really think that it could have worked against Liverpool and it can work. It can be what gets them out of it. Is there hope for them, Seb? Because, of course, relegation is, is um, well, it would be very, very, very bad. Yeah, very, very bad. But I, I don't know. I mean, I was actually, I was quite impressed with the management on Sunday just because I, it felt as if Lampard knew what he had to do to kind of knock Liverpool out of its ryth- out of their rhythm and also to get under Liverpool's skin a little bit. It reminded me a little bit of the, um, do you remember the, the two, 2014 uh, Gerrard slip game when Chelsea went there and they did exactly the same thing. Every goal kick seemed to take five minutes, every throw and needed the towel, that kind of stuff. And it was, um, it was very effective. It just didn't quite have the players to, to execute and to take advantage. Of course, they had the fantastic Demba Bar. They did. And also, I mean, they had a lineup which included Mohamed Salah that day and Mark Schwartz had played extremely well. So there were a lot of things in their favour. But I don't know. I think they, they might... Um, I'm a little bit worried purely on the basis that Burnley have started playing quite well again. The Burnley Twitter account has been releasing little snippets of the weekend's game. And... There's a little bit more energy in Burnley at the moment. There's a little bit more of that kind of, ironically, uh, typical Shondaish solidity, particularly in midfield, particularly in, when they, in the way in which they take away space in the middle of the pitch. And these are good signs for Burnley. And 
look at Everton's fixture list. I think Chelsea are there to be beaten, perhaps, because I think Chelsea have checked out. Chelsea are going to finish third. They're going to be in the Champions League. I, I think there's there's so much going on. It's such a, a strange macro situation at Chelsea now that the football becomes sort of incidental and that's leaked onto the pitch a little bit. Um, so I think that's a result that they could get. Leeds could drop in to be part of that three in the combat. I mean, very uh, less likely, but Aston yeah. Villa also possibly. Well, I, I'm wary of including Leeds because Leeds are going to play Palace between us recording and releasing the podcast. So let's just see where they are. We don't know what the result of that is. If they win, suddenly it seems much less exactly. likely. If they lose, then all, you know. They're very much in the conversation. Well, and then I think, yes. I mean, they've got, they've, got, they've, got to, they've got to go to Arsenal, which is a horrible fixture at the moment for them. It's almost a zero-sum game because you there are things to feel encouraged by with Everton. But then... Um, there are just too many negatives. Like they, they could sorely do with Calvert Lewin being fit and available um, and being in form. I mean, that's you know th- this game. Liverpool can't break Everton down, so they bring on Luis Diaz, who's amazing, and then Everton are chasing a goal and they bring on a half-fit Salomon Rondon. Like it's. I'm glad that you. Know, you it's a different. You, you added the kind of the half-fit prefix there because we're we're big members of the old Salomon Rondon fan club. I think we included him in sort of every episode of every issue of, of Sensible Transfers for a good three or four years. It's, Rightly so. You guys are going Rightly down so. with the uh, with the Rondon ship. Yeah, yeah. possibly. But, but this is, you know, this is the difference, isn't it? And like you say, Seb, Burnley are ticking a little bit more and playing a slightly different style of football, which is interesting. That sort of change is the kind of thing that provides impetus to a team in that position. Everton unless they do change and bunker down like they did for this game, which does feel like it could have been a one-off. They don't have that quality to come off the bench. They're not going to have a sufficient stylistic change that's a positive thing. Like, it's hard for them because of that. You need you need something to add a bit of joie de vivre, you know? There's no- you can also, you can make the case for them picking up points, singular points, throughout this run of fixtures. I don't know whether they've got enough to actually win games and they need to win games. That's the difference, I think. That's the problem here. Um, there are so few goals in that team at the moment. The burden on Richarlison is enormous. And I love Richarlison. Uh, I think he's, uh, if Everton do go down, he won't be short of options. But I still don't see him as a natural goal scorer. In the, he's a wide forward. He's not a number nine. He needs to be playing off somebody. That's when he did his best. And now, like, Cavalloon's not fit. Rondon's not fit. Where are your goals coming from? I mean... It's a, it's a lot to ask. And also Richarlison, you, you see he's a one chance out of four kind of player. And that's fair enough because he's he's not a, no, he's not built as a goal scorer. He's an all-purpose forward. So that's the problem I have. And also the lack of track ahead of Everton. They might run out of room in which to improve fixture-wise. Okay, let's do another quick break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? 
FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Yes, we've returned from the break. And to finish off the podcast, there's a few uh, bits to discuss, beginning with transfers. Yes, we're getting to that stage of the season now where some transfers are uh, being uh, reported on or rumoured or discussed. Um, The first one I would like to uh, bring up here, David Ornstein tweeted last week, uh, Arsenal exploring the possibility of signing Gabriel Jesus from Man City. Uh, Keen to point out that the clubs are yet to speak, but talks between Edu and uh, the reps have been going on for months. The 25-year-old is open to the idea and is a current favourite. Calvert-Lewin also among the options. Um, Alex, I guess it was a fortuitous week for Gabriel Jesus to score four goals in one game. (laughs) Fortuitous in what regard? Uh, for the news, I oh, suppose, yeah. for everyone to be for excited about it, for the narrative, uh, for him, if he does want to move, not clear. Yeah, I I mean, I guess it, it draws attention to that. Like, he's a really, really good all-round striker. Um, if you look at his numbers on FB Ref, there's an awful lot of green, um, which users of Ref, FB Ref will understand what I mean by that. He's a clever player. He's a clever player. You know, Pep is just consistently experimenting with varying systems that require different and unorthodox things of whoever plays in the middle of that attacking front three. And Jesus has played pretty well coming in off the right-hand side, but I think he is a more orthodox forward than what Pep is generally looking for. So moving away for him in some regards does make sense. And I think, you know, throwing back to what Seb said earlier in the podcast, if you... If you gave a striker of that sort of quality to Arteta, you would have a much better sense of of whether Arteta really is a genuinely good to great coach mm. or whether he's, you know, just busking it slightly on the back of the quality of some of his younger players. I think that could be a really interesting addition to that team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's the best natural fit for them. I would still look for someone like Isaac, but... It, it would work, I think. Sure. Okay. Uh, Seb, Simon Johnson from The Athletic also reporting it is definitely confirmed Antonio Rudiger will be leaving uh, Chelsea on a free at the end of the season. Uh, he's got a, a player with a lot of suitors. Yeah, apparently he's joining Real Madrid, which makes a lot of sense because they need... Oh, yeah, is, that, is that happening? ...to reports on Monday. Um, and yeah, I get Ooh. that. I think it's a pretty smart addition. Sends back in his prime. I mean, it, it does make you think, though. If you look at it from the other angle... What are Chelsea doing about their defence? Because okay, so the ownership situation rumbles on. They're unable to negotiate incoming transfers. They're losing Christensen. Um, they're losing Rudiger. They have already lost Tamore. Already lost Gay to Crystal Palace. Azpilicueta is there because he's had a cause activated in his contract. Don't feel great about that Chelsea backline and a kind of... That's not... I don't know, it just, it just looks very, very shaky when Rudiger gets taken out of it. And I, I suppose that's probably the way to measure him. I, I've always thought of him as a, he's a little bit too all action for my purposes sometimes. Tries to do, he's, he's so gifted with the ball uh, and he's so technically good that it's almost a little hindrance to, to the way he plays. Um, and kind of his adventurous side makes me nervous at times. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you see his value when he's not there. His adventurous side is what gave Chelsea the impetus in attack, the the element of unpredictability that they sometimes needed when it was all clicking for them in the first half of the season because that's what allowed Rudiger's ability to carry the ball forwards or pull slightly wider is what allowed Chilwell to make those inward runs and so on. And I think, yes, Rudiger's a great defender, but also that's the thing that really makes him exciting to me. It's He's like a... This is going to be a 
not controversial thing to say, but he's like a quicker and more dynamic version of Maguire when Maguire does that. And then Maguire looks a little bit more ponderous on the ball. and But still, having a centre-back, particularly a left-sided centre-back, who can carry the ball through the first line of the press, who can push up and allow your midfield passing line to set itself 10 or 15 yards higher, that's how you really squeeze the life out of teams. And I think Chelsea, as well as having defensive problems, obviously with those departures, that's something that they're going to miss a lot. I suppose it's also something that allows you to carry a 37-year-old Thiago Silva. If you want to use him as more of a stopper in your back line, then that's that's what you, that's the kind of compromise yeah. you want to make. To me, the Real Madrid thing is a little bit curious because you think about, we've just talked about really good style. Now you're pairing him with potentially David Alaba, if you're keeping Alaba as a centre-half. Um, no, you, you move Alaba out to the left. I mean, then what are you doing with Mendy once you've done that? And I'm bored. Okay. Bundesliga. <laughs> uh, Bayern won the 10th Bundesliga in a row. Yes. PSG also clinched Liga. Not their 10th in a row, of course. Um, Bayern, uh, is that Bayern winning the Bundesliga 10 years in a row? Hmm. Not great for the Bundesliga, is it? I, I enjoyed one tweet. Um, actually, there was a thread by uh, Stefan Biankowski. It was a little thread about that. Hey, Stefan uh, does a great newsletter, right. by the way, if, um, if people are interested. In okay. Read, read well, I enjoyed that thread um, on Twitter. You can you can find that and, and, and read, read through it. He posted it on uh, the 23rd of April. Um, but there were some responses to it. Uh, some uh, Even some Bayern fan Twitter accounts quote tweeting the thread and saying, good thread. <laughs> the thread essentially saying Bayern winning the league every year is not great for, for the Bundesliga for a multitude of reasons. If even Bayern fans think that now, then you've got a bit of a problem, haven't you? I think so. It's interesting because I was in Germany over the weekend and I was at home and obviously... I mean, you're in Germany now. I'm in Germany now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but It's an odd flex, the, isn't it? That Just to say, I was in Germany over the weekend. I nipped to Germany Where I still it am It sounds now. more exciting. Where it makes I me live. sound like a kind of, um, yeah. you know, corner guard. Oh, you're Ball. a digital you know, nomad. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah. Sure. And obviously the focus of the weekend in the Bundesliga was Bayern against Borussia Dortmund. And yet I was thinking, no, I'm, I'm not going to watch that because I don't care. It doesn't matter in the way that people think it should. Actually, I watched Eintracht against Hoffenheim, which was a brilliant game um, in which Evan Indica did absolutely everything. Own goals, assists, goals. It was it was great. But I think this is the problem in, in that you, if you don't have... If the headline within your league is predictable, if you're always getting the same main story every single season, I think that's a problem. And I think it's also a problem that no amount of good mid-table fixtures and interesting kind of unpredictable um, kind of Zweider Bundesliga events and, you know, ooh, aren't Werder Bremen suddenly, you know, terrible again and, you know, and Wolfsburg are awful and, you know, all this stuff. So you have a lot of news stories in German football. You have a lot of parts of it which nobody saw coming. Nobody saw coming. And yet none of that matters because Bayern are your headline and Bayern are the most predictable show on earth. It's also worth saying that Stefan in his thread, uh, he talked about how, you know, the beginning of those 10 years, Bayern's tactic was to to buy the best players of their opposing teams. They don't really do that as much anymore. And he points out that actually it's Premier League teams that that, that, that tend to do that, which just leaves the, the, the league overall a lot weaker. Mm. Well, also, if, you, if you, this is a really good example from this season, I haven't read the thread, so Stefan might bring this up, but in case of one of Bayern's signings over the summer, uh, Marcel Sabitzer from RB Leipzig. Sabitzer, good player, not an outstanding one. Um, in the sort of previous generation, the player that maybe Bayern Munich would have taken would have been Erling Haaland. 
Now it's Sabitzer who doesn't really contribute to Bayern Munich season. It hasn't been fundamental in any competition for them. Has made um, last time I looked it up, it's hundreds of minutes of sort of first uh, of pitch time, um, so not substantial at all. And so all that's really been achieved is Leipzig take a big step back, and Bayern aren't really any stronger as a result. And obviously you pair that off with their, their exit in the Champions League to Villarreal, who, good team, again, really good team and a great achievement by Unai Emery, of course, but really underwhelming. And I think that's kind of Bayern. One of the other problems is that Bayern have been good this season, but they've gone through really strange periods. Like, you know, the Pokal defeat to Gladbach was just bizarre. So there isn't really a recompense for it. You don't sort of you don't have the upside of a team dominating a league in the way that you might do if if that cultivated you know an extreme level of excellence as it seemed to a couple of years ago when Hansi Flick was was coaching them and I don't know what that means I'm not about to make a kind of sweeping conclusion about the kind of the standard of the Bundesliga or the standard of Bayern Munich but it just hasn't been very fun to watch and a standing joke like Alex and I do go on about the Zweite Bundesliga. But um, it's not just fashionable. It's just it is better to watch. It's more interesting. And in terms of kind of getting your your money's worth out of your football and seeing something weird, let me give you an example this from this weekend. So the biggest game was Schalke against Bremen, uh, which was first against second. And Schalke were 4-0 down at home within 55 minutes. Okay, really extreme example, but you need a little bit of that in your football. And yet in the Bundesliga proper, unfortunately, it all seems so inconsequential. It feels a bit League 1-ish, I'm afraid. Um, much as I love German football. And that is a criticism. Well, there we go. Uh, a couple more things to cover uh, before we finish for the day, Alex. Uh, all sorts of reports, uh, unclear as to whether it is happening or not, but all sorts of rumours, at least, about Pochettino leaving PSG. Now, yeah. not much of a legacy, I suppose, to have left there. I mean, perhaps one that will be reflected on quite negatively, you would say. At least in one of those league seasons, they did not win Liga, which mm. uh, is quite a difficult thing to do. Um, <laughs> the integration of uh, Lionel Messi has uh, has been difficult and complicated. And of course, they have not won the uh, Champions League, which is the only purpose of that club's existence. Yeah, basically that is correct. And also, you know, Pochettino can't even really claim credit for bringing Messi to the club because that wasn't his thing. Sure. It's very difficult. And that that is always the issue that, any manager who goes to a club like PSG, potentially even a Bayern Munich as well, to bring it back to that as well, that the league is just a foregone conclusion. Like, sure. what do you prove by winning that? It's, you know, it's the first major accolade of Pochettino's career, but so what? There's one metric of success, and that's, have you won the Champions League? For those clubs, absolutely it is, yeah. And, and uh, you know, this is, this is the problem when football... Even in certain leagues, you know, it's not like that in the Premier League, for sure. It's basically a duopoly most of the time in La Liga. Um, but if two of the four major leagues in Europe, or sorry, two of the five major leagues in Europe are like that, mm. um, it does become quite boring and quite difficult to, to sustain interest. And it also becomes difficult to judge that coterie of coaches mm -hmm. who have achieved those things yeah. with those clubs. Um, Let me ask you a question. If PSG were to finally win the Champions League, yeah, right. Let's say they did it next season. Do you know how in your life, when you, you sort of you work for a long time towards a specific goal, uh, a major achievement, and then you achieve it, and it's fun for about five minutes, and then you go, mm. oh fuck, what do I do now? Yeah. Do you think PSG might have like an existential crisis after that happens, where they go, oh right, do we do this every year now, or or is it just back to Liga? Huh. 
Yeah. That's when, that's when if Quite I was in possibly. charge of PSG, I'd be yeah. thinking, when's the fucking Super League starting? Because like, it can't just be this forever. I, I think, no, seriously, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you look back at, at periods where single clubs have dominated European competition, right? It's, it's never been won more than three times in a row by one club, I think. Certainly once we got into the more competitive, more open era, and you know, Bayern Munich and Ajax were huge teams in that period, but were also being pushed domestically by other sides. Mm. Um, this is the thing you always have. Real Madrid, for example, winning the Champions League three years in a row, they now face a, a semi-resurgent Barcelona. They, they face Atletico right. Madrid. Atletico who, Madrid's always going to be yeah. a thorn. There's new severe challenges can, every year. Yeah. Even if they are smaller, they yeah. still take up your attention and your focus exactly in a way this. that just doesn't happen with Liga. No, I, I think that's very true. I mean, I was having a conversation with my partner the other day about like would will kids in 10 or 15 years time be as interested in football as they are now or will it be as sort of obvious a cultural behemoth that mm. most people can this is a conversation you had with your partner yeah sure well, good uh, lord okay no the reason the reason for this is uh, we we're out on a walk and we were walking behind a dad with his two sons and, uh, they, and they were talking about the premier league right and it was it was obviously such a kind of natural like oh we're going for a walk and we'll talk about football and mm. so it was she was basically saying like everybody just kind of talks about football in that generic way is that going to be the case in five or ten years time and I think there are lots and that lots of reasons that was her first thought <laughs> probably not I don't know I can check with her but you know the the governance stuff <laughs> suddenly I'm starting about. to realise why this, this relationship seems so successful yeah <laughs> that's for great. sure yeah. yeah isn't that nice it is great but the, the, the <laughs> governance thing that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast I think is important this sort of question around Joe's really tickled himself here <laughs> the, the question around PSG or Bayern or the Super League you know the next sort of three, four years, I think, will we'll have a major, major bearing, rule changes as well, um, that have you know been trialled in various places. Mm. It'll have a major bearing on just how popular football is in the wide way that it is now. And I don't think it would take, like football's always going to be big, right? But I, I think if you have a cataclysmic World Cup and a Super League and the government reform's not working and... Juve only ever wins Serie A and PSG only ever win Liga. And like, if that's mm. what the football landscape is in five years' time, there's going to be a lot of younger people who are just not asked with it anymore. Yeah, no, that's um, probably true. And that's that's a, an existential f question for football rather than just for PSG. Okay. Well, I wonder. No, Seb. I, well, so I sorry. It's a, no. Okay. So sorry. We we we've taken up far time. I've got I've got to go in a minute. But before I do that, I feel a bit bad that we've left Oldham right to the end of the podcast. Uh, but I do do as much as I want to hear what you have to say about the bigger thing uh, we were just discussing. Oldham dropping out of the football league for the first time. I'd very much like to understand what what what's happened here because I saw lots of things on social media. I don't really know the story. Okay. Well, if you want the story, I, I was just going to read Phil Buckingham's piece, and there's a quite a bit of other athletic coverage but um it's notable because Oldham are actually one of the um are the first original premier league member to drop out of the football league so that is a big old plummet um but yeah go and read phil's excellent article um it's really really good and there's a series of bits and pieces there that um yeah you should read in chronological order can you give me the cliff notes i may not no Oh, fine. Okay. Well, in which case, then, if you would like to go and do that, you can visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Phil Buckingham, a fine reporter, uh, has written a lovely piece on that, as, as Seb has said. Um, so uh, you can go and find that. 
Uh, but that's all. That's all for today's podcast. Uh, Alex Stewart, thank you. Thank you. Um, Seb Stefan Bloor. Ah, danke schon. Vielen Dank, Herr Devine. Yes, feel that dank. And uh, uh, thanks, as usual, to uh, producers Craig uh, Silcock over there. And uh, for always uh, uh, cast a, a scarce a glance. He's going he's gonna to beep his, his surname name. out. Hmm? What's that? He's going to beep his surname out of the edit. Yeah, I reckon he probably is. If you yeah. beep, he's going to beep his surname yeah. out. Fine, fine. Well, anyway, um, thank you to uh, lovely old Father Christmas over there, and uh, to um, to whatever audio person it was today. Maybe it was Adonis. Maybe it was Tom. Mm. Could have been a freelancer. We just don't know. We just don't know. But I'm sure they did a fine job. So thank you for all your hard work, listeners. We'll be back again next week uh, with JJ Ball making a return um, and uh, look forward to that. I'm sure it will be a different thing to this one. Bye now. Bye.